Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, Please turn with me in your Bibles to uh, the book of Titus. Uh, For those of you who were not uh, with us last week, uh, we've just moved in our study to chapter 2 of the book of Titus, uh, where the Apostle Paul uh, focuses a great deal of attention on the nature of godliness in the church. And what is godliness? Well, we've taken our our definition uh, from Jerry Bridges' book entitled The Practice of Godliness. It's a classic book uh, where he states that godliness is devotion to God, not merely devotion, devotion to God that results in a life that is pleasing to him. Last week we looked at the necessity of godliness. In chapter 2 verse 1 Paul explained to Titus, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And what accords with sound doctrine? Godliness, a devotion to God that results in a life that is pleasing to him. Now, last week we addressed uh, the matter in broad terms, uh, but from today we'll get into the nitty-gritty. What does godliness look like in the church? What does it look like for the different ages and genders within the membership of the congregation? Well, this is what Paul spells out for us in chapter 2, at least the first half of chapter 2. But before we start, it's important to reiterate once again that when we talk about godliness, we are speaking in terms of the fruit that is to be expressed in the life of God's people. These are the expectations uh, for everyone who has already been brought into the kingdom of God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. These are are not ways in which someone might earn themselves into the kingdom. In Romans 4 verse 5, the Apostle Paul says, To the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So good works are the necessary fruit of being made right with God. They are the evidence that this has actually happened. But good works have no place in making a sinner right before God. This, as Paul says, is not something that we can work for. Uh, To those who think otherwise, uh, listen to the sobering words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 12. He says in verses 43 to 45, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also it will be with this evil generation. These are the words of our Lord. And this is a picture of someone who tries to bring about moral change in their lives without first having come to faith or been brought to faith in Christ and been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Now, true faith includes repentance, acknowledging our sin before God, 
but godly behavior can only properly flow out of having already been made God's child. Indeed, Paul's already made this point in the opening verse of Titus, where he explains that godliness comes after faith. So with that in mind, we can begin looking at the standards of godliness in the church. But be prepared as we do so. Now, these are hard-hitting words. Paul doesn't hold back, even though it's a short section. And we must also be prepared because what the Holy Spirit lays out in these verses is enormously counter-cultural. We may find that our views are are tied much more into the the culture of today than we realise when we hear these words. For starters, there is a clear distinction between male and female, which runs against our society's current trends. But Paul says here, through the Spirit's inspiration, that there is an unequivocal difference between male and female, and that each are called to live in a manner that God has divinely designed, a manner that will bring glory to himself and bring joy to the church, as each member, young and old, men and women, display the goodness of God in their lives. It should also be noted that in the first chapter of the letter, Paul, he placed a great emphasis on the need of church discipline, of false teachers and and wayward believers. But it's important to understand that discipline does not merely have a a corrective side, a, a more negative side. It also has a preventative side. There's a positive and a negative aspect to it. And see, chapter 2 is devoted to preventative discipline, teaching the church how it should be living, painting the picture of what godliness looks like and calling people into that, as opposed to calling the church back from what it should not be doing. Both of these aspects are necessary for sound faith and sound living. So we're going to take our time to work through these standards, spending a week on each group that Paul addresses. These are vital words for knowing how God wants each of us to live, but also for knowing how others are to live, knowing how the church as a whole has been designed to work together as Christ's body. The same was true for when we looked in depth at the eldership in the first chapter. You see, the better we know what God expects of the whole church, how he has designed things to be, uh, the better we can aim for the right things in our own lives and the better we can encourage and pray for our fellow brothers and sisters in God's household as they seek to serve God in the way he's called them. So today our focus is on the standard of godliness for older men. Titus 2 verse 2 says, Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Now the word translated here as older men is similar to that in Titus 1, which speaks of the office of the elder. Uh, But here in chapter 2, the reference is not to an office, but to an age. The words used in Luke chapter 1 when the angel Gabriel appeared to Zechariah in the temple and told him that Elizabeth 
would become pregnant and give birth to John the Baptist. And in verse 18, Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. So when Paul refers to older men here in Titus, he's speaking generally of those above the age of 60. And from the example in Luke's gospel, this will be true also when he speaks of older women. In contrast, the younger men and the younger women are those of marriageable age up to about the age of 60. So before we get into the passage proper, it would be helpful to make several quick observations. First, while Paul is not addressing children, it is clear that the standards set out here of godliness are what children are eventually to grow into. And so Paul's instructions here give us an understanding of the kind of things we should be teaching to our children and we should be training them in. Second, unlike uh, today's society, which Uh, where what is considered marriageable age keeps rising and and rising. Prior to the last hundred years or so, uh, children were expected to grow up much, much sooner. And so it's imperative that when we get to Paul's words for younger women and younger men, that those of high school age uh, are not sitting there thinking, well, that won't apply to me for at least another 10 years or so, so I'll pick that up later. Well, think again. Maturing in Christ starts the moment we are made in Christ, regardless of our age. Third, the almost idolatrous obsession of youth in today's culture has had a stunning impact in the life of the church. No longer are the teenage years seen as as a time of transition from childhood to adulthood, Instead of progressing through to maturity, many want to keep themselves parked there as long as possible. And it's not just the teenagers who want to stay there, it's the adults as well. They just want to hang on to everything about their youth rather than continuing on to maturity. And this is evident not only in the society, but in the church at large. We see this in the way that that people act and talk and dress But where is the evidence that a person is growing in their knowledge of Christ and seeking to be conformed to his likeness? Uh, Where is the, the growing in maturity that the Bible speaks of over and over again? We also see this in the way churches are more interested in making the worship service an experience Uh, that will supposedly relate more to teenagers, the the music and the words, the language, the teaching. And the mature Christians are pushed aside and told to get with the program or find another place. But where is the reverence for God? Where is the growing understanding of the nature of the God we worship? Where is the action of a people who understand God's holiness and righteousness and transcendence? Many churches do what has been described as junior church. Superficial, immature worship that stems from a superficial and immature understanding of the whole counsel of God. But wouldn't it be far better to be known as a place that does adult 
church. A place filled with deep worship and deep understanding. A place where people are are willing and eager to wrestle with the gravity of the greatness of God and his word. And where all the people have a deep desire to grow to maturity in Christ Jesus, expressing the knowledge of the truth in the wisdom of their lives. 1 Corinthians 13, 11, Paul said, When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. So let's be a place that is known for doing adult church. Fourth, the the categories of older men and uh, women and younger men and women, these are really broad categories. Paul is addressing the adult members of the church, which, as we've seen, probably refers to, to those younger than what our society would actually class as adults. But it's helpful to think of these uh, broad categories in, in reference to the other members of the church. As, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 5, verses 1 to 2, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. In this passage, Timothy is told how he is to relate to different people in the church depending on their age and their gender. So it is a wise person who, regardless of, of how old they personally are, simply takes Paul's instructions here and thinks about how their lives impact those older than them and those younger than them. The last thing to observe flows naturally out of Paul's point to Timothy here. The manner in which Titus is is to teach what accords with sound doctrine will be determined by whom he is speaking to at the time. We are to remember that the local church is not simply a gathering of like-minded individuals at a particular place in a particular time. Church is not a footy match where the the only thing that we have in common is the team colours that we rock up to the ground dressed in. Church is the body of Christ, the people of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit. The members of a local church are God's household and we are to treat each other with care and respect And with dignity, older men as fathers, older women as mothers, younger men as brothers, and younger women as sisters. And we must remember those last words, in all purity. The command for Titus to teach godliness to the congregations is tempered then with a loving respect for who he is speaking to at any given time. Well, these observations will be valuable to remember as we study the the different groups addressed within the church over the coming weeks. But we turn our attention now to the first group that Paul speaks about. There are four aspects of godliness outlined for the older men in the congregation. And we must remember that uh, there is no doubt much more that Paul could have said And he does so in other places within his letters. And there is indeed much more said throughout the pages of Scripture. But while there is more, there is certainly not less. 
And so, the first godly standard for older men is they are to be sober-minded. In its most basic sense, this characteristic speaks to someone who is free from intoxication. Someone who's not under the influence of alcohol or some other drug. Yet there is more to this standard of godliness than simple sobriety from alcoholic or drug-related influences. Paul is speaking, moreover, about mental sobriety. To be sober-minded means to be clear-minded, clear-headed. A sober-minded man is a discerning man. The Apostle Peter says to believers in 1 Peter 1 verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. These are words to the whole church, and yet it's something that should be a characteristic of older men. A sober-minded man is more discerning about his priorities. He has grown past the immaturity of youth and is able to see what is of greater value and invest himself in things that matter, not for himself, but for the glory of God. A sober-minded man is more discerning about his possessions. He comes to see that his greatest treasure is in heaven, for he's learned that moth and rust do actually destroy things on earth. And so he's more willing to use his resources for God's service. A sober-minded man is more discerning about his own sin. The longer he knows God, the more he realizes the holiness of God and sees his own life in contrast. Stark contrast. We think of the Apostle Paul as a godly man. But in Romans 7, he utters those words of despair. What a wretched man I am. Well, how on earth can he say this? Because the better he saw the holiness of God, the better he saw his own sin. The longer he walked in the light, the better he could see his own darkness. We must remember that while old age brings opportunity for gaining wisdom, it is no guarantee of gaining wisdom. The standard uh, for older Christian men is sober-mindedness, but this does not come automatically with a senior's card. How is this godly characteristic to be developed then? Well, how about this? Colossians 3, verses 1 and 2. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. A sober-minded man is one who seeks to align his thoughts and his actions to the things of God. And of course, this only happens through the study of the word. Psalm 19 verse 7 assures us of its effectiveness. The testimony of the Lord, it is speaking of the Bible as a divine witness, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. 
as the Holy Spirit illuminates his word to us, our minds are renewed and matured, forced upwards to the things above and developed to think with clarity and wisdom as God's people. Older men are in a position to exemplify this to the whole congregation. And so older men are to be sober-minded. The second godly standard for older men is they are to be dignified. To be dignified means to be honourable, to be respectable. It means to be weighty, to have substance. In Philippians 4, Paul speaks of the need for believers to present their prayers to God and trust him with the outcome. Uh, And then in the meantime, have their minds focused on what God has revealed through his word. And he says in verse 8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honourable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is any worth, anything worthy of praise, think about these things. The word translated as honourable is the same word translated in Titus 2 verse 2 as dignified. But think about those other aspects that honourable finds itself connected to. Truth, justice, purity, excellence. Those are powerful words. Earlier I I spoke about society's uh, idolatrous worship of youth culture But what are the characteristics represented there? They're pretty much the opposite of dignity and honour. There is nothing weighty about immaturity. And yet many men, even in the church, exhibit and espouse these things through the way they speak and the way they act. They are less dignified and more flippant and flimsy. But what does dignity look like? Well, one commentator says that it it signifies that which lifts the mind from the cheap and tawdry to that which is noble and good and of moral worth. That's got some weight to it. A man with dignity has a seriousness about himself. That doesn't mean he scours. That doesn't mean he has no joy but that he does not concern himself with trivialities. He's focused on matters of importance. He acts maturely. For instance, he takes seriously David's question in Psalm 15 that we looked at last week. Question, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Answer, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbour, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. A dignified man is one who strives to display these things. A dignified man is ready to deal with the issues that the world throws at him. He's not caught off guard or unprepared, having been too busy uh, engaging in silliness and, and fun and frivolity and Things that are frivolous and of no eternal value. A dignified man is one who is worthy of respect. You know, one of the reasons uh, for the failure of older Christian men to act with dignity is one of the things that affects all of us. Selfishness. 
It is selfishness that keeps the man focused on his own needs and his own desires rather than recognising he is part of Christ's body and that while he has breath in his own body, he is to use his gifts to edify the body. Instead of caring about the importance of his life to the body and the impact that his life has on the rest of the church, he's focused only on what matters to him. He cares little about acting with dignity and being an example to the rest of the flock. He's only in it for himself. But that is not the attitude men of God are to display. We don't get to decide for ourselves how we act in the body of Christ. We are told what is expected of us, and it's not me telling you what is expected of us. It is the Holy Spirit setting these standards. Children don't dictate to their parents how they're going to live in the house, do they? The parents set the rules, and so it is within God's household. He lays out his expectations on his children. However, when God graciously brings us into his family, he also graciously enables us to follow the expectations he places upon his household. So older men are to be dignified. The third godly standard for older men is they are to be self-controlled. Galatians 5.23, the passage that probably springs to mind straight away when we think about self-control is is that which speaks of the fruit of the Spirit, self-control being one of them. But in that passage, it translates a different Greek word to what's found here in Titus. In the Galatians passage, self-control has to do uh, with having a mastery over one's self, a mastery that is only by the power of the Holy Spirit. But in Titus 2, the word translated as self-control has a slightly different meaning. Instead of mastering, it has more to do with moderating. It refers to someone who is sensible, someone who is well-balanced from God's perspective. One commentator writes that this is a, a man who does not command himself, but is commanded by God, and so he lives in a God-defined balance. The Greek word is connected to our English word, diaphragm. Uh, In our bodies, there are several diaphragms, but the one that generally comes to mind is the muscle uh, at the base of our chest that helps control our breathing. This is especially relevant to singers uh, because it's the diaphragm that helps produce a steady and balanced stream of air through the lungs and the vocal cords. According to one vocal coach, uh, when your diaphragm is engaged, it keeps the lungs open and moderates the rate at which the air exists Uh, exits the body. This means there is more control over the tones produced. And this helps us picture uh, what Paul is setting in place for older men. They are to be balanced, moderated, sensible. Another word might be prudent, which means someone who is wise and careful and thoughtful. This same characteristic is expected of elders in chapter 1 verse 8. When we discussed it in that context we saw that a prime example of sensibleness was when jesus cast a demon out of a man in mark chapter 5 
Now, prior to meeting Jesus, uh, we read in, in verses 3 to 5 that this man, he lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had, been, he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. So the man was out of control. Or better yet, he was out of his own control and under the control of a demon. But then what happens after Jesus healed him and the the people of the town come to investigate? Verse 15. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. They saw the massive difference that Jesus had, had made. This man was now in his right mind. He was now self-controlled, sensible, balanced. Well, what does this mean for older men? It means their lives will be an example of what it is to be guided and controlled by God's priorities. It is a life that, that seeks the things that God loves and shuns the things that God hates. A life that seeks the wisdom of God, not the foolishness of this world. Think of Paul's words in Ephesians 5, verses 15 to 16, where he said, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. The prime example of this, of course, is the Lord Jesus himself. His words in John 6, 38 sum up his actions. Jesus said, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So what a blessing it is for the church when it is filled with older men who have walked with God many years and provide an example for the rest of the church to follow. So older men are to be self-controlled. The final godly standard for older men is that they are to be sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Well, here we have that same word that we have seen so many times already in the letter to Titus, and the word is sound. The underlying word is where we get our English word hygiene from. Uh, To be sound then is to be hygienic, it's to be clean, healthy, good. And there are Three aspects here that older men are to be sound in. They are to be sound in faith, they are to be sound in love, they are to be sound in steadfastness. We see these three aspects connected multiple times in Paul's writings. For instance, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, Paul praises the entire church for their actions and he says this, we give Thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith, love, steadfastness are necessary attributes for God's people and especially the men of God. So what does it mean to be sound in faith? Well, this has to do with a man's trust in God. 
The longer a man has walked with God, the more he has learned of God through his word, and the more he has come to trust in God through his own experiences of God's faithfulness. He has seen God come through many times before. We must remember that faith is simply not a feeling. It is based on truth. That's why Paul opens his letter in verse 1, stating that he was commissioned for the sake of the faith of God's elect and then knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. To be sound in faith necessitates a sound understanding of truth and an exercise of godliness. As James says, faith without works is dead. Speaking of salvation in its fullest sense, Paul says in Philippians 3 verse 12, Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So man, if Paul had to press on, we certainly must press on as well. And firstly, to press on to be sound in faith. Well, what does it mean to be sound in love? Well, this has to do with a man's personal devotion to God and to others. Love for God and love for others. It's not a business-like arrangement, like God is somehow a faithful employer who the man trusts and admires but does not love. No, it's a relationship of love. In 1 John 4, the apostle makes clear that love for God is only possible because God was the initiator. John writes in Chapter 4, verse 19, we love because he first loved us. And yet the true test of a man's love for God is his love for others. John continues in verse 20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not love his brother whom he has seen, sorry, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So the man of God has a deep love for God and for his fellow believers. So faith and love are expected of the godly older man. And this leads us to the third aspect. What does it mean to be sound in steadfastness? Well, the word literally means remaining under means that God will enable the man to remain under the challenges he faces in life without wavering. How does the man of God remain under trials? How does he remain steadfast, endure and persevere? Well, he knows the promises of God and he knows the God who promises. Again, look back to the opening verses of the letter. Paul says that his commission uh, not only concerned the faith of God's elect, not only the fruit of God's elect in their godliness, but also the fearlessness of God's elect. He was commissioned for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Verse 2, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. The man of God is able to endure because he has hope, the assured confidence of eternal life. That's what biblical hope is means. It doesn't mean one day maybe I hope that that would happen. Hope in the Bible 
is an assured confidence that God has said it and he will bring it to pass. This is a truth that's brought out elsewhere in scripture. In Philippians 1 verse 6, Paul says to the believers, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Then in 1 Peter 1, the apostle writes these amazing words. and Just let these sink in. 1 Peter 1 verses 3 to 5, the apostle says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The inheritance is imperishable. It's not going anywhere. And God says he will keep his people persevering until they get there. What an assured confidence that is. Well, what an incredible blessing the older faithful men are to the church. Whether a man has an official position in the leadership of the church or not, men can and should have an enormous impact on the direction of the church as they seek to exhibit the standard of godliness and faithfulness that God calls them to. In 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1, Paul said boldly, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Likewise, the older men of the church have both the privilege and the responsibility of imitating Christ and serving as an example of Christ-likeness to the rest of the congregation. Now, that might sound like a scary prospect, but the reality is we will impact others whether we think about it consciously or not. We can ignore the call of God upon our lives, uh, disregard the necessity of being a godly example, but you know what? We will still be an example Uh, We will be exhibiting to those around us that following God, imitating Christ, striving for godliness and faithfulness is not really that important. Take it or leave it. We will influence others by driving them away from Christ. What an amazing positive difference we can have as we seek to live in the way that God has called us. Men, By your example to the women, to those younger than you in the church as well, you can show them the greatness and the wonder of knowing God and living for Him. At the end of his life, Paul wrote these words in 2 Timothy 4 verse 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And to the older men, may that be the desire of your lives. And as we address the standards of godliness for the rest of the church in the following weeks, may that be the desire of us all. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word that you've revealed to us. We thank you that you have clearly set about the standards of godliness.
for your church and particularly as we think today about the standards for older men in your church. Father, we pray that you would enable uh, the men in our congregation to uh, seek and desire earnestly wanting to submit to these characteristics that you call upon them. May we be known as a congregation uh, that is mature in faith and in godliness and we pray for our men that uh, they might lead the way. Father, for those in our congregation here or those who are with us this morning who who do not know you, uh, we pray uh, that they would not hear a, a, a call for living a better life, but they would see clearly these characteristics uh, are, are fruit that you grow in your people. And so we pray for those who do not know you that they would fall upon your mercy, uh, cry out for salvation through Jesus Christ alone, that they would repent of their sins and trust in Jesus. And that through that they would know the life, the eternal life that is found in you. They would have the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit, the third person, the Trinity, residing within them. And that you would from then grow uh, godliness within them. Father, for those uh, in the congregation today, these words have been tough, these words have cut to the core, uh, where uh, some may have have seen these and, and, and realized how far short they may have fallen, we pray that you would uh, uh, allow your word to to cut, to cut us down to size and to cause us to repent. But we thank you we, that even repentance is by your grace alone. And so we pray that these words uh, would not be defeating, but that they would uh, help us to see uh, what you call for each one of us. And we pray that you would work repentance where repentance is needed and that you would grow people in in the grace as they seek to um, be matured into the likeness of Christ. Father, we pray that you would would strengthen us overall as a congregation as we look through these words. You would help us to see the necessity of of godliness. You would help us to see that that justification leads to sanctification and that if we are not growing in godliness, then, then we must truly examine ourselves as to whether we have understood the faith, whether we have truly submitted to Christ, for he is both Lord and Saviour, and he works in us, uh, growing us to be more like him. And so we pray that you would help us to, to see the divine design that you have set out for, for men and women, both old and young, and that we would find joy as we seek to, to apply these things in our own lives. And may you be glorified through us as we do so. In your son's precious name we pray. Amen.